0: One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light.
1: Did Jesus teach yoga? I used to answer in the affirmative many years ago when I taught yoga at four universities in the Tampa, Florida area, and I ran a yoga ashram. And then, of course, I had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that changed a lot for me, including my doctrinal base. However, why did I make that assertion back then? We're going to find out, but first let me define what the word yoga means. It comes from a Sanskrit word that means yoke. And the implication is being yoked with the oversoul, being yoked with Brahman, being yoked with ultimate reality. So what is a yogi? A yogi is a person who is accomplished in the study of yoga, who has achieved some of the higher states, who is under the yoke of self-discipline in order to experience the higher self. And, of course, many people claim to be yogis who are on the yoga path. Many Hindus believe that oneness with Brahman is the ultimate state, and I'll get to that more in just a moment. The origin of yoga cannot be traced. It's so old. The practice goes back so far. However, Patanjali is a noted sage in Hinduism who was the person who actually codified yoga and is famous for authoring something called the Eight Limbs of Yoga, eight steps you go through in order to reach the ultimate goal. And I think it would be important to go over those eight limbs, those eight steps, so that you have a basic understanding of what the approach is. I believe I'll do a podcast one day just on the eight limbs of yoga. But to get an overview, number one is yamas. That's Y-A-M-A-S. And that means ethical rules, moral parameters for your life, a system of don't do commandments, like don't harm any living thing, which is also called ahimsa, or don't steal, Uh, don't be immoral, have a chaste heart, don't be greedy, live in the truth, and live in an unselfish attitude of heart. So that's yama. And then number two, the second limb of yoga is niyamas, or niyamas. Sometimes people uh, pronounce it. And those are virtuous habits and worshipful observances, like making a pilgrimage to a holy site. That would be niyama. Number three is asanas. And asanas are physical exercises that are a part of the whole system of yogic belief. And that's what most Westerners are familiar with, and yet that's only one-eighth of what is really considered to be the yogic path. Number four is pranayama, or breath control, breathing exercises, based on the idea that the breath is saturated with the divine essence called prana in Hinduism, so that when you're breathing, you're bringing in the essence of God. And By controlling your breath and doing intense breathing exercises, you increase your level of God consciousness, if you will. And there's much more to it than that. Then number five is Pratyahara, which is not closing your eyes, but closing your mind to the material and sensory world. Number six is Dharana, which is concentration. Number seven is dhyana, which is contemplation. And number eight is samadhi, which is oneness with the divine. So these are the eight steps, the eight limbs of yoga, yamas, niyamas, asanas, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. I'm sure you've memorized all of those and can rattle them off real quickly just by listening to that statement. No wonder though, no wonder most Hindus will declare that there is no Hinduism without yoga and no yoga without Hinduism because they're inseparable one from the other. It's such an ingrained belief into that overarching term, Hinduism, that you cannot separate one from the other. Well, why would I have insisted as a yoga teacher that Jesus taught yoga? And why do many other New Agers and yoga advocates believe that? Primarily because of his statement in Matthew chapter 11 verses 28, 29, and 30. And let me share that three-verse declaration right now. Jesus said, What an invitation to come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Other translations say I am humble and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that was an idea, a concept that was well known within orthodox Hinduism, because when you followed a rabbi, you took his yoke upon you. And so Jesus was basically telling his disciples that if they followed his teaching, they would be taking his yoke upon their lives. Well, the word yoga means yoke. And so as a yoga teacher back in 1970, I connected the dots between the two and assumed immediately Jesus taught yoga. However, when you really compare his teaching to the basic elemental teachings that are resident in yoga or in the various kinds and types of yoga, there's a lot of contrast. There are some similarities, but there's a lot of contradictions that we need to visit what did Jesus mean when he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me? I believe it was basically his way of saying, do life like I'm doing it. Act the way I would act. React the way I would react. Talk the way I would talk. Believe the way I would believe. And achieve goals in life, just like I achieved a goal in life. And that was to become a sacrifice for the human race, for the good of humanity. And the goal of discipleship is not realization of self as they teach in Hindu yoga, but actually denial of self. Because Jesus said, if any man wants to be my disciple, he must, number one, deny self and take up his cross and follow me. It's a different emphasis altogether. When you're yoked with Jesus, too, I think it's important to see that two animals, say two oxen that are yoked together, must go the same direction at the same speed to accomplish the same goal. And if we're really yoked with the Lord Jesus, we've got to be sensitive to His will, which we learn through the written word and the living word. The written word is the Bible, of course, the living word is God's. Personal communications to your spirit. And if we're yoked with him, we will travel the same direction at the same speed by following his will, which is known through his word both the Logos, the written word, and the Rhema, the living word. That's what Jesus meant by that statement take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Because by doing that, we learn his character, we learn his nature. We learn his vision. We learn his destiny. We learn all of the things that he passes to his followers as an inheritance. Now, let me review just basically, certainly not in great detail, but just basically eight different types of yoga to see if Jesus taught any of them. Now, there's many more types of yoga than the eight I'm going to reference. And each one emphasized a little bit different area usually, but I thought these would give a good overview of different types of yoga and then comparing them to Jesus' teaching. Number one is the one most Westerners are familiar with, and that's hatha yoga. Hatha yoga basically involves the physical exercises, the asanas, which are unknown to most people, for the most part, worship poses to Hindu deities. For instance, the warrior two pose, which is usually a part of any Hatha yoga class, is dedicated to Ganesha. And in essence, it is an invocation to that god, that deity, one of 330 million gods and goddesses that are worshipped in Hinduism, it is an invocation to that deity to come and be involved in your life and manifest in your life. That's supposedly the god that overcomes obstacles. And so that god is supposed to help you overcome obstacles in life. And that Pose, the warrior two pose is dedicated to him, just as all the other major poses are dedicated to various Hindu deities. So you can't separate one from the other. If you're going to be doing hatha yoga, you're going to be acknowledging those deities, whether you realize it or not. However, Jesus echoed the commandments of the Old Testament to his disciples he was very much in favor of the first commandment where God said, I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And so that was an absolute mandate from the Old Testament, not to worship any other gods and certainly not to make any graven idolatrous images to them, which is common in Hindu yoga. All right. Number two, is karma yoga. And this is a very interesting thing to visit for just a moment because karma yoga is the path of action. Each one of these is a path. Like hatha yoga is the path of physical disciplines. Karma yoga is the path of action. And it's good works or selfless service that is supposed to be an attempt to work your way toward enlightenment by ridding yourself of negative karma. Let me take you to a... Uh, I've got an article on the truelight.net where I explain some of these things, and I want to share with you what I say about karma yoga. For instance, it's the yogic system that is based on the idea that every action causes either good or bad karma. Furthermore, the soul of a person remains locked in a series of rebirths and Uh, that's inevitable and inescapable until all karmic debt is paid off. So the object of karma yoga is to rid yourself of all negative karmic indebtedness so that you can achieve release from the cycle of rebirth, which is referred to as moksha in Hinduism. That's M-O-K-S-H-A. Moksha is release from the cycle of rebirth. Did Jesus teach karma yoga? Absolutely not, because he did not teach reincarnation. He taught one life and then resurrection, and resurrection is much different than reincarnation. However, there are some commonalities, because Jesus did teach the concept of cause and effect, which is a very strong belief in Buddhism as well. He warned that if we judge others, we will be judged. He also stated, if we are merciful, he said, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. So there's a like return into your life. He uh, definitely stated that the way we measure out to other people is the way it will be measured to us in return. And Paul kind of summarized that belief later on by saying in Galatians chapter 6, whatever we sow, that we will also reap. So did Paul teach Karma yoga? Did Jesus teach karma yoga? Well, not exactly, because there's a tit-for-tat return in karma yoga, where whatever you think, say, or do is going to come back to you inevitably, but it's a general rule biblically. It's not an exact reproduction of what was sowed in uh, your life, and then reaping something absolutely the same as a return because, uh, well, it's a general rule, as I said, that human beings must work out their destiny uh, until uh, they must work their own soul salvation, uh, and until they rid their life of negativity. And then if they're sowing love, they're going to tend to reap love in return. But sometimes when you love others, they don't return love to you. So it's not exactly predictable within the biblical worldview. See, if the biblical view is right, we will definitely reap from all our actions and attitudes in life. Yeah, what you sow is what you reap. However, if we don't reap a return on everything we've thought, said, and done in this life, at our departure from this world, the slate is wiped clean and we enter into a state of perfection, heavenly perfection, celestial perfection in a soulish state, and then ultimately at the resurrection, we will have body, soul, and spirit utterly perfect in the image of God. There will not be this repeated cycle of rebirths until we pay off everything we did wrong or reap everything we did right. And so it's not exactly the same. The next type of yoga is mantra yoga. Did Jesus teach mantra yoga? Absolutely not. Because in Matthew chapter 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. And that's Matthew 6, 7. And then two verses later, he gave the Our Father prayer as an outline of a proper approach. But he never meant for the Our Father to be repeated. Uh, say, as I did as a Catholic, uh, where you do the rosary and you say the Our Father at least five or six times while you're doing the rosary. He didn't mean for it to be mechanical, methodical like that, and it becomes monotone and monotonous and without depth of meaning. I use the Lord's Prayer as a general outline in approaching God, but I I don't just quote it word for word without enhancing it with other insights and other revelation. Like if I say our father, then I celebrate the fatherhood of God. I celebrate you're a loving father. You're a gracious father. You're a father who intends to preserve your offspring. And I go through that prayer using each statement as a springboard to further worship and further praise. No, Jesus did not teach mantra yoga. You can say praise the Lord or hallelujah multiple times and yet say it with a different emphasis, a different kind of passion. So it's not wrong to say the same thing, but it's wrong to believe that you earn some kind of mystical achievement by repetition for hundreds or thousands of times hours and hours of mantras being quoted were part of my discipline as a yoga teacher. I would spend sometimes an hour or two uh, chanting the same mantra over and over again in a very monotone way. You would never talk to a fellow human being that way. They'd think you're insane, so you shouldn't talk to God that way either. The next is bhakti yoga. Now, when I was a yoga teacher, I often told people that Christians were actually involved in bhakti yoga because bhakti yoga means devotion to an individual God. And uh, it's taught within Hinduism that that is a path. It's the path of devotion and that you can achieve enlightenment. Eventually you can achieve oneness or samadhi, union with God through the path of bhakti yoga. However, as I mentioned a few moments ago, those deities are not real. They're they're fables. They're myths. They don't exist. Uh, If you go through the whole pantheon of Hindu deities, you'll find some some very dark entities that are not expressions of God, And, and then some that appear to be benevolent, and yet they've got all kinds of human errors or human frailties, human-like frailties in their character, but the true God is perfect and flawless. So anyway, did Jesus teach bhakti yoga? Absolutely not. He taught devotion to the one true God. Then the next kind of yoga is jnana yoga, and that's J-N-A-N-A, and it's the path of knowledge. Well, is knowledge important? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so there's an intimate kind of soul knowledge or spiritual connection with God that is important. And also the Bible talks about growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which happens also by studying the word, by getting to know him in a more intimate way through prayer and also getting to know God in a more thorough way through studying the word and meditating on the word. So knowing God and knowing about God are both important in Christianity, but it's not the same at all as what is taught in this particular form of yoga because they would source that revelation information in the Bhagavad Gita or the Vedas, which are Eastern scriptures, which teach things quite different than the biblical point of view. Only in Christianity is the knowledge of the true God imparted. So all paths do not lead to the same God. The next kind of yoga is Raja Yoga, and the word Raja in Hindu means royal. And it emphasizes meditation. Now, I've done teachings on the difference between biblical meditation and Far Eastern meditation, and I'll summarize it in one statement, that the Far Eastern approach primarily involves emptying your mind in order to achieve higher mystical states. But the biblical approach of meditation is filling your mind with thoughts about God or specific truths in God's word where you invite the Holy Spirit to come and bring inspiration to you. is not thoughtlessness, it's thoughtfulness. And really mindfulness is a misnomer because when you practice mindfulness, you're really practicing at times, not all the time, but some aspect of it is mindlessness. You want to empty your mind well it's different in the biblical approach. the next the seventh kind of yoga is tantric yoga, which is the goal of achieving mystical experience, supernatural experiences, and sometimes in tantric yoga that is pursued through the the through various sexual involvement, sexual practices, sometimes those that are taboo or forbidden by normal cultural norms, uh, expected cultural norms. And uh, it's taught that through that, you can somehow achieve a higher state of consciousness or through various methods associated with sexuality. Well, Jesus certainly never taught that because he agreed with the prohibition in Scripture against aberrant behavior sexually, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, uh, incest. All of these are outlawed in the Bible. The only kind of sexual fulfillment allowed in the Bible is between a man and a woman in marriage. Number eight is kundalini yoga, which is the type of yoga I was involved in. And the word kundalini means serpent power. Why would I, I not pick up on the fact that the Bible identifies the serpent as something representative of evil. And why would you represent the type of yoga I was doing over 50 years ago as serpent, uh, as symbolized by a serpent? Uh, I should have picked up on that. But in new age uh, spirituality, a serpent is a symbol of esoteric wisdom is a symbol of revealing secrets and mysteries uh, because the serpent in the garden is a deliverer of mankind into mystical knowledge, not a personification of Satan much more could be said about that. But the whole belief in kundalini yoga is an amalgamation of the other kinds of yoga, the other seven that I just mentioned, and bringing them into one system of thought all geared toward the awakening of the kundalini, which is supposedly a dormant coil-like serpent power at the base of the spine, that must be awakened through hatha yoga, through pranayama yoga, through mantra yoga, through various aspects of yoga, in order for that serpent power to travel up through the spine to the crown chakra, where a person merges into oneness with the Oversoul. Did Jesus teach that? Absolutely not. Because he did not teach an essence of divinity already within man. He said, you must be born again born of the Spirit. And that's an absolutely opposite point of view where the Spirit of God enters into you from without. And Jesus and the New Testament as a whole teach the necessity of being cleansed from your sin by the blood that he shed on the cross in order to become a proper place of indwelling for the Holy Spirit. So did Jesus teach yoga? Absolutely not. He taught being yoked with him, but he did not teach yoga. And those who profess that he did don't really understand his teaching. And I'll end with one scripture in that second Corinthians chapter six, verses 14 through 18. This says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So, you can be yoked with other things and it be wrong and leads you down a path that does not lead to union with God. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, what communion has light with darkness. Or what accord has Christ with Bilio? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And let me say in closing that to be yoked with Jesus leads us, yes, to a place of oneness with God. But within the framework of Christianity That does not mean becoming God. It means blending with God. It doesn't mean that uh, we suddenly come to self-realization and realize that we are God, but we do become sons and daughters of God. Much more could be said about those things, but I'll end for now. Thank you for joining me and listen. I urge you to go to my website, thetruelight.net, and order this little booklet, Seven Reasons Why I No Longer Practice Yoga. I go into even more detail in that booklet.
0: Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.